turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. In the first letter, as in the second letter, this is from Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. So Silvanus just being uh, Silas, but that's Silvanus would have been the, the Latin version of his name. So Paul and Silvanus and Timothy have written this letter. Now really, <laughs> it's greetings from all of them, but it really is the Apostle Paul writing this. But of course, we all, you know, it's, it's good for us to know the authors. But I'm always careful when I talk about the authors that I don't leave the impression that this is just the author's opinion because we all believe, I think, Everybody believes here tonight that this scripture is inspired. God breathed. It's breathed in by the Holy Spirit. So um, this is not a matter, as, as Peter wrote, no scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, but men moved by the Spirit of God spoke. And so by men, he means humans, because throughout the scripture, we've got men and women speaking by the Spirit of God. And prophecy uh, in scripture, uh, if we could read the scripture as a direct word from God for us, I believe it's that word that would change us and that word that would divide things that need to be divided and that word that would cause things to grow and come alive in us. Second Thessalonians 1 starts with the greeting of to the church in Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course as many times as we read that in every letter that, that exhortation, that impartation of grace and peace doesn't get any less important. Often the letters are started with a, uh, with a blessing of grace and peace and they're ended with the same blessing. So this is important. He moves on, he says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting. Not like that, because uh, I think he gave thanks for people that didn't deserve it. <laughs> you know, I, he talks about the Philippians who were a great church. He has a lot of good things to say about them. But he says, I thank my God in every remembrance of you. Every time I think of you, I thank God. There's no church on the planet that is that good that you always just feel thankful every time you think of them. If you've spent any time with people, eventually they'll give you reasons not to be thankful. Thankfulness is a choice, isn't it? Thankfulness is choosing to see what God sees. And I believe the Apostle Paul was able to say, I, 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 see, I see what God's doing in you. And Paul said that later. He said, because I know that he who began a good work in you, he says it to the Philippians, will be faithful to complete it. He prayed for the, first Thess for the Thessalonians in the last letter. He prayed for them that, that God would continue his work in them and fully finish his work in them, spirit, soul, and body, until the return of Jesus. So this is, uh, his thankfulness is not just a product of they did everything right, but his thankfulness is an attitude of the heart. And I think there's nobody in your life that you can't be thankful for. There's nobody in your life that you can't thank God for. This is the attitude that we've got to have. When we pray for our brothers and sisters in the church, and I hope you do, let's, is, is there thankfulness that comes out? And I understand that there's plenty of reasons that something else might be there. But the choice to be thankful is, is really about perspective. It's perspective. What do we see? Are we seeing what we see or are we seeing what God sees? And so in 1 Thessalonians, he says... It's only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. 
Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and your faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. We'll talk more about those persecutions and afflictions next week, but let's stop for a minute and talk about this, um, this very thing that he's thanking God for. He's thanking God, and I'll read it again. I'm thanking God because your faith is greatly enlarged. And the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. This is the sign of a church that's growing and a church that's alive. It's not, it's not necessarily that the, the numbers are so big, they're bursting at the seams and the building's too small. It's not that they've um, accomplished such great deeds that everybody looks and says, wow, you've moved mountains. Thank God, I believe they will do that. I believe they could do that. But beyond that, he says, I can tell that your faith is greatly enlarged and that your love for one another is, is a love for each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. And tonight, let's just focus on that. And, and, and I would like for us to take that as a sign. That's the sign of Christian maturity. That's the sign of someone that's grown in the Lord. And our first instinct to... Um, Seek out, you know, is, is this somebody that's further along in the walk? Or is this someone that I should look up to? Or is this someone who's really grown a lot in the Lord? Sometimes the way we think is, how much do they know, right? We, we look to the people that know more than us, and we say, I want to learn from them. There's nothing wrong with that. I think that's probably good. But in the kingdom of God, the proof that you are a mature believer is not how much you know. There's nowhere in the scripture that says a mature believer will be known by their knowledge. Knowledge is good. By itself, it's not good. Without love, knowledge is destructive. Because without love, you don't know how to apply that knowledge. Without love, you become arrogant with that knowledge. And the problem with knowledge, nothing wrong with knowledge unless you're arrogant with it. Because somebody who's got a little bit of knowledge and gets arrogant causes a lot of trouble. Right? Because the problem is you don't know as much as you think you know. None of us do. We have an infinitely intelligent God who wants to teach you, who wants, who wants to impart to you his wisdom. That's huge. The only way to stop receiving that wisdom is to get puffed up and think you know everything or even that you know a lot. In fact, the Bible says don't be wise in your own eyes. Now, that's tricky because I'd like to think I know more than I did 10 years ago. I'd like to think I know more than I did when I was a teenager, even though I think when I was a teenager, I thought I hit the peak, you know? <laughs> I was sharing with the men's group on uh, Monday night that I went through a stage, and Brent will remember this, uh, went through a stage where, you know, message boards were the thing. You know, this was before MySpace or Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. This was you know, before all that, there were message boards that you'd go on, and we actually created our own message board, which made sense to us. It was a combination of love for Jesus, snowboarding, and was it music? Was that the other thing? Yeah. I think that was the, the trinity right there. <laughs> we thought those things flowed together perfectly, and, uh, you know, it was good, but the problem with message boards, and we were on quite a few is that or the problem with Christian message boards or any message board really is that it's prime ground for a good argument, right? That's, a lot of people just go on there to argue. And with Christian message boards, it's even worse because people go and they, 
They go to debate spiritual things. Now, there's nothing wrong with a good spiritual discussion with somebody that doesn't agree with you. I think that can be healthy. The only problem is our goal was not to grow. Our goal was to win. (laughs) And how do you win? By beating the other guy up with your facts so much that he slithers away. And and, uh, we, we considered it a win we considered it a win one of two ways. Now, I keep saying we, Brent. That's not, that's not your fault. Maybe it was just me. I considered it a win. I, w- I considered it a win when either they stopped posting anything. <laughs> I get the last word. Or they just, uh, you know, kind of reduced themselves to childish insults, you know. Because then you knew, or they compared you to Hitler or something. Then you knew they really lost the argument. Godwin's law, right? Once you compare somebody to a Nazi, you've lost the argument. But I remember, I remember when it hit me, and it hit me sitting there with, my, with our computer in the basement of the house, 56K modem that took forever to, to load up anything. I remember when it hit me, I'm not growing, and I'm not causing anyone else to grow. In fact, I came to realize, I don't think I've changed anyone's mind, right? Have you ever argued so well, just beat somebody up with your logic so well that they said, you're right, what must I do to be saved? (laughs) We brought tears to my eyes, oh, I'm touched. No, all you do is further entrench them in what they believe and you're further entrenched in what you believe, but nobody's come out any better. Like I said, I I think it's healthy for us to have discussions with people we don't agree with because maybe you will learn something. But if your goal is to win, you've already lost, right? We've said that with marriage. You know, if a husband and wife are trying to win something, they've lost. Because the minute you make your spouse an opponent, that's already, you've already lost the game, right? You're one in the spirit. Same thing with the body of Christ. If we make one another the opponent that we have to beat, We've already lost. We're, because as, as the Bible says, as long as you're trying to bite and devour one another, take care that you yourself are not consumed. Because if your hand decides that it hates the other hand and, and, and these two hands are at war, eventually you'll just have two mangled hands. That's what you'll have. And so I remember the moment it dawned on me that I wasn't causing anyone to get any closer to God. And I myself wasn't any closer to God. I was wasting my time with arguments. I was wasting my time with debates. And I, I, you know, you get this idea that you're some sort of holy warrior, you know, like a Christian jihad. Careful how I say that, but (laughs) purely, purely on message boards, guys. Not actual anything, but just, just words. But really, I don't, I know that God didn't ask me to do that. God didn't need me to fight that for him. What he needed for me to do was to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and show the same love to them as, they sh- as he showed to me. And so the Bible tells us to speak the truth to one another in love, doesn't it? I believe there's room for correction. I believe there should be correction. But correction without love is abuse. It's not, it's not helpful. It just damages. And in this, the, the proof of somebody's growth It's not that they knew more or they did more or they could do more, but the fact that their faith was bigger and their love was greater. And I think we could say 
once again, if we were to isolate ourselves and say, I feel more love towards God, then maybe you could say, well, I, uh, I love the Lord more now than I did when I first met him. And I would believe you. But if you say you love the Lord more now than when you first met him, but you don't love his people anymore, then your first step statement proves false. Because to love him is to love his people. And John says it brilliantly. He says, if you have, if you ever, because he's, the church that he's writing to was dealing with some, some big heresies that had arisen, some, some big counter cults, if you want to call them that, especially the Gnostics, that were claiming to have a higher knowledge and claiming to know more. And, and uh, they didn't know who to listen to. And he gave them some instruction that I find not so helpful. He says things like, um, we know who's true because they listen to us. Well, I thought, that doesn't seem fair. <laughs> hey, you guys, you want to know who's true? Yeah, tell us who's true. The people that listen to us are true. You know, that, that seemed a little unfair, but it was scripture. But then he goes on and he gives you a bit of a better uh, definition. It gives you something to go by. He says, if you ever hear someone who claims to know God, but they don't love their brother, they're lying. And he's not telling you that so that you can go out and find all the people that don't love like you think they should love and bash them over the head and say you don't know God. But he's telling you the, the proof of someone knowing God is not how spiritual their prayers sound. The proof of someone knowing God is not how mighty their deeds seem. The proof of someone knowing God is how deep their love is for the brethren, for the brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the proof that now... Will you move mountains? Absolutely, right? But Paul said, if I have faith to move mountains and I don't have love, it means nothing. It means nothing. He said, if I gave all my money to the poor, but without love, it means nothing. Now, now we've talked about love as a verb, right? You know, DC Talk said it. L-U-V is a verb, right? That was back when they were a rap group, before they became a rock group, before they became a rap group again. They said love is a verb. And you say it like that, love is a verb. And we've used that, like love is a verb, love is action. And I totally believe that, but it's not action alone. Because if it were action alone, Paul could have said, if I gave all my money to the poor, there, proof I love them. But he doesn't. He says, if I gave all my money to the poor, but didn't have love, it means nothing. Which means that he's saying, like, even if I were to do something that seemed to be loving, but I really didn't love him. I did him for different motives. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't count. And so the proof that somebody has grown close to God and has, is a follower of Jesus, and Jesus said this. He said, they, the world will know that you're mine, that you follow me, that you've heard of me, learned of me, received of me. The world will know that you're my disciples by what? Your love for who? One another. One another. Not your love for me, but your love for one another. Because like I said earlier, you can claim to love God. But the proof that you love him is that you love one another. Right? I mean, come on. Uh, you know, the scripture says, how can you claim to love a God you haven't seen if you don't love your brother that you have seen? Right? Because, you know, we can claim, I love God. But the, the easy thing about loving God is that you can kind of, he's, he's invisible and, and he's perfect. And, and, and you can choose to 
acknowledge that he's there someday and acknowledge that he's not another day, not to pay attention to him. And, and so you can claim to love God because quite honestly, we can easily create a God in our own image. We shouldn't, but, but sometimes people do. We just say, this is, well, I think God wouldn't want me to, to do that. I don't think God would ask me to do that. Why? Because you've created a version of God. But the greatest way to know if you love God is do you love his body? Do you love Jesus? Do you love his body? We've said this before, but you can't claim to love somebody's head and not love the rest of them, right? That's not, that doesn't make any sense. I love you, I just don't love most parts of you. Makes no sense. So if we, if we love Jesus, we will love his body. Now the easy thing about loving Jesus is Jesus is perfect without sin. He's never hurt you in any way that you could blame him for. You know what I mean? Maybe you felt hurt by something, but it, the Lord has done good, only good to you. Every good and perfect gift is a father, from the Father of lights. So, so it's very easy to love Jesus because he's perfect. But how about these people that aren't perfect, that, that have some flaws and it shows up when you hang out for, maybe not for an hour, but if you hang out for a day, they'll come out. What about the people that have blatantly done something unchristlike? Well, the scripture leaves you no loopholes. In fact, Jesus goes out of his way to tell you, if they've done you wrong, hey, go out of your way to pray for them. Bless them. And I, we've talked about this before, but to somebody who believes a blessing is something you just do when someone sneezes, maybe that's easy. But you folks know that there's power in a blessing. And the problem with us and the problem with what we believe is we actually believe something happens when we bless someone, right? And that's hard when you're blessing your enemies. <laughs> Would rather throw some empty words to the sky and say, there, I obeyed you, Jesus. But if you believe that when I speak a words of blessing over someone that things are going to go well for them, that's when it really becomes difficult to bless them. But that's when your heart begins to change. I, I don't think it's just Jesus doing that for their benefit. I think it's Jesus doing it for your benefit. When we begin to bless others, our hearts are healed. When we pray for those that have persecuted us, when we love those that have called themselves our enemies, things change in us. It heals us. And so this is one of the great barometers, whether you've forgiven someone, is can you with a straight face pray a blessing about them, for them, over them? Can you go to the Lord and pray that good things would happen to them? Because if you can do that, you already have begun this. God has begun a work in your heart. He's changed something in you. And then I'd say this. Sometimes you, you, you can't do it without feeling conflicted. But do it anyways. Because that's faith, right? Faith is not what we feel. Faith is obeying the word of the Lord. And when we step out in faith, what happens? When we step out in faith, we receive what God has for us. When we step out in faith, thank God, as the lame man stood up, he was healed. As you step out, as you begin to act in it. I, I want to read you something, in fact. And I, I quoted this somewhat loosely uh, when we talked about marriage a, few, a couple months ago. But I do want to read you something that I, thought, I found very interesting. During World War II... Uh, C.S. Lewis gave a weekly radio address. Now, some of you just know C.S. Lewis as the guy that wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. But C.S. Lewis was actually a, a, um, a Christian 
writer and, and some might have said a philosopher, Christian philosopher, a teacher. Um, and, and God really gave him a platform in his time, in his country, to speak to a group of people, namely the intellectuals of his country that had really become atheists without, without going so far as to call themselves that. They, they really hadn't, had, had lost their faith in God. And uh, he was able to reach a lot of these people. And, and he gave a weekly address during World War II. The World War II, as you know, guys, there's a lot of wars that we feel mixed feelings about. But World War II, we feel pretty good about. Right? Most of the time, it's the feel-good war of the century. There was a bad guy and there was good guys. Until you start to dig a little bit more and find out that there were bad guys on our side too, you know. The Eastern Front, Stalin versus Hitler. Who's good there? Right? That even good guys did bad things in the war. That no war is perfect. And that somehow as, this is my personal belief, you guys can believe something different, but my personal belief is that somebody had to rise up and stop that guy. Somebody had to do that. Somebody had to do it by force because they tried every other method and it didn't work. That's what I believe. Now, I have fr friends that are Christian pacifists and they're, they're firm in their belief, and that's fine. My belief is that there's some points where somebody's got to stand up with a sword and stop the other guy with a sword from hurting the people without a sword. That's just my perspective. So you guys can have different perspectives on that. But one thing is, even in war, we, we can't stop being followers of Jesus. So it becomes complicated how we feel about our enemy. I remember uh, Br Brother Copeland was talking about a a man that he knew that was a helicopter pilot during Vietnam War. I just came from Vietnam a few months ago, and it's so strange to think that, you know, that America was at war with Vietnam not, not too many years ago. You know, it hadn't been that long. And these were just lovely people. I couldn't, I had seen movies about the Vietnam War, and they're the bad guys. But you step there, and you know, these aren't the bad, these aren't bad guys. These are very good people. And so it becomes complicated. But he talked about a helicopter pilot who's doing his duty and, 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 and running, going on missions. But this helicopter pilot who was, you know, uh, I believe he was part of the, the Marines, as he did his missions and he, he flew his routes and he did what he was supposed to do, he was trained to do, he said there was a point where he went from doing his duty to wanting to kill these people, enjoying it. And he said, that's when he knew, now this is before he met Jesus, but that's when he knew he went from a soldier to a murderer. Well, that's a difficult thing to process. Thank God the blood of Jesus cleanses us. But during World War II, there's a really bad guy doing really bad things. And the British stood against this really bad guy. Now, if there were any time that we'd feel justified in hating a whole country, that might have been one of those times. Look at what the Germans are doing to the Jews. Look what the Germans are doing to their neighbors. Look what they're doing to us. So C.S. Lewis gets up and does these weekly radio addresses right in the middle of World War II. And I think it might be a time where you could stand up and say, rah, 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 God's on our side. Defeat the heathen, defeat the Hun, let's do this. But instead... He pointed them back to the teachings of Jesus. Now, I know for a fact that C.S. Lewis agreed with the war effort, but he still believed it was important for, G for disciples of Jesus to act and think like disciples of Jesus. And he said this. I'm just going to read it to you as 
as he said, this is direct quote, though natural likings should normally be encouraged, it would be quite wrong to think that the way to become charitable is to sit trying to manufacture affectionate feelings. The rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Don't waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love them. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. Whenever we do good to another self, just because it is a self made like us by God and desiring its own happiness as we desire ours, we shall have learned to love it a little more or at least to dislike it less. The worldly man treats certain people kindly because he likes them. The Christian, trying to treat everyone kindly, finds himself liking more and more people as he goes on, including people he could not have imagined himself liking at the beginning. Now let me, he's putting this in a, in a, in a, way that unchurched people could understand. But let me put this in a, in, a, in a scriptural sense. I believe this is faith working by love, but faith working through action, right? Everybody, we all believe that, because remember what we just read in 2 Thessalonians was that your faith was getting bigger and in relation to your faith getting bigger, your love towards one another was getting greater. That's always the way it should work. That's the way it works. In fact, the Bible says in Philippians that I pray that you would abound even more and more in love in all real knowledge and discernment. You should not be growing in knowledge if you're not growing in love. You can't grow in discernment if you're not growing in love. There's a whole bunch of people who have, who, who would consider themselves masters of discernment and they are very angry people that are just out to find the false teachers, out to find the charlatans, out to find the fakes, and there's no love there. Amen. And we don't want to become those people and it'd be very easy. The more you grow in knowledge, the more you know what's wrong, right? The more you grow in discernment, the more you recognize what's wrong. I don't know if you've ever experience this, but if you are a part of the body of Christ for long enough, you'll see things that could be different and should be different. If your love doesn't grow in direct relation to your knowledge, you'll become bitter and resentful towards other people because you'll see all the faults, but love will not cover for those faults. Love will not seek to heal those faults. Love will say, well, thank God I'm not like them. Uh, not love, sorry, the lack of love will say, thank God I'm not like them. Instead, our love is meant to grow. And our knowledge and discernment grows with it. Our faith grows with it. But let me ask you a question about faith. Peter, the only guy besides Jesus to ever walk on water that we know of. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if some believer in India has done it, but I haven't heard of it. The only guy in the Bible besides Jesus to walk on water is Peter. We all believe Peter had faith, right? Or is his faith? His faith was in the power of Jesus directed towards him that if Jesus were, were to say, come out and join me, I can do that. But let me ask you a question. When did that faith start? We all believe it started in the boat, right? Lord, because he, he's the one that came up with the idea. Jesus didn't even come up with the idea. Peter came up with the idea. Jesus didn't say, anybody want to walk on water? Peter came up with it. The Lord, if, I, if, if it's you, let me walk on the water to you. And Jesus goes, okay. 
Come on out then. So Peter in the boat had faith. I believe that faith grew when he heard Jesus say, okay, come. But now if he had stayed in the boat, if he had all that faith but had stayed in the boat, what would have happened? I believe that faith would have diminished the longer he just stayed in the boat. If he had stayed in the boat the whole time, pretty much that faith would be useless. But the faith was activated when he stepped out of the boat. We've, uh, we've talked about this before, but you know, every, almost every miracle that Jesus ever did towards somebody in the Gospels, even in the book of Acts, same thing. The healing accompanied a command. So, to a crippled man, take up your bed and walk. To a lame man, or to, to a lame man would be the same as a crippled man, but in the book of Acts, to a lame man, stand up on your feet. There was, you know, a blind man, go wash yourself in the pool of Bethsaida. He gave them something, the, the lepers, go and present yourself to the, 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 to the priest. There was always a command, and when they, when they, the instant they started doing whatever Jesus told them to do, they were healed, Right? The instant they, they tried to stand up, they could stand up. The instant that, that the man went to and did what Jesus said and, and washed his eyes, he was completely made whole. The minute that the lepers started, just started to go to the priest. Remember, they got healed on the way. On the way of obeying the Lord, walking towards where he told them to walk, they noticed they were healed. And when a man came back and gave thanks, he was made whole. So it was in the action that their faith was activated. Faith came by hearing the word of God, right? That's when faith came. But faith was activated, made alive when they acted on that faith. So what Brother Lewis is saying here is, even if you don't feel it, when you do it in faith... When I, when I love someone in faith, what do I mean by that? Well, the, Jesus told us what it looks like to love one another. You know, First John, it says this. It says, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin, as propitiation for our sin. What's he saying? This is what love looks like. Look at Jesus. Look at the cross. That's what love looks like. So if you're wondering how do you love one another, that's how you do it. John goes on to say, in this we know what love is, if we lay down our lives for the brethren. So, simply put, love looks like Jesus. That's love. So if we want to know what it looks like, look at Jesus, right? Look at the cross. That's love. And if you want to know how to love someone, do that. <laughs> lay your life down. And so, what he's saying here is, is as in the act of loving them, even when you don't feel it, Faith is put into action, and that love begins to grow in you because you've acted in faith, in obedience to the word. I, mean, I believe this because when I read this, I see that, faith, that love abounding in them is a work of God. It's a work of the Spirit, not a work of them, their own flesh, right? It didn't come from them. They couldn't make that love happen. I, I can't make myself love you anymore, and really, you can't make me love you more. You can't, not with the love of God. Tony can do all the nice things to me in the world, but the, the thing that's going to cause the love of God to grow in me is not the nice things that Tony does, but rather the work of God and the work of the Spirit in me. The Bible says that's how we get the love of God. The love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's the only way to get the love of God. It's by faith that we receive that. 
And when we act in faith, what would love do? Because I know when you're abounding, your heart is full of love, you seem to just know what to do, don't you? You know when you love somebody, you just want to do nice things for them? You want to buy them things, you want to bless them, you want to pray for them, you want to, whatever they need, you want to do for them. And, and that's good, because that's, your heart is full of that love. But what about those times where you know and believe that I am a believer, and because I'm a believer, God has created me to love like he loves, but I don't feel it towards them right now. And honestly, I don't want to do these things right now. Do we wait until we feel it? Do we just sit at home saying, well, God, I'm not going to do anything until I feel it because I don't want to be fake. I don't think there's anything fake about walking by faith and loving even when you don't feel it. Because here's the deal. You are a spirit, aren't you? Right? You're a spirit that has a soul. You're a spirit that has emotions. You're a spirit that has a body. And when we talk about what I feel, most of the time we're talking about our emotions. Right? And I believe that what happens in your spirit always bleeds into your emotions, always brings, bleeds into your soul, and it bleeds into your body. So I believe when, when the fact that we're alive in the spirit, it affects our body. I believe it affects our mind. But sometimes our body and our mind have to catch up. <laughs> right? So... Here's why the Bible is full of not only promises, but instructions. And often the promise is attached to an instruction. Here's why. Because he's telling us faith comes that this is a work of God and this is what, what God has to do. But there is a, there's something you got to do to activate that. There's something you got you to gotta, you gotta walk in faith. You got to act in faith. We got to love in faith. We got to give in faith, right? You don't just give when you feel like giving. You give out of obedience, and then you know you're also prompted to give. The Bible talks about our hearts being stirred to give, right? But you know, I give, I give the tithe whether or not I feel like it because I know that that's God's word. I believe that. So even in times where it's been tight, we don't feel like it, we do it. Because I believe, hey, I trust God here, and I'm not led by my feelings. And I want to read you the rest of what C.S. Lewis said during that radio address. He said this, The same spiritual law works terribly in the opposite direction. The Germans, perhaps, at first ill-treated the Jews because they hated them. But afterwards, they hated them much more because they had ill-treated them. The more cruel you are, the more you will hate and the more you hate, the more cruel you will become, and so on in a vicious cycle forever. By the end of the war, could you ever imagine how some one human would treat another human like that? Towards the beginning, when Hitler rose to power, there were men and women who stood up and said, this isn't right. In fact, the church was one of the major Groups that opposed him, we, many of you will know the names of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Karl Barth. There were, there were many of these men who stood up and said, this isn't right. But slowly, most of the German Lutheran church began to give in because it, it started with slow little changes. And most of those German people did not hate their Jewish neighbors. But when someone 
convinced him on that crystal knock to pick up a rock and throw it and told him, you're right to do this because these people have ruined our economy. These people made us lose World War I. These people are out to get you. These people are out to destroy our country. Oh, okay. Maybe there's a little hate working there. Maybe there's a little dislike, but you still feel weird about it. You throw that rock at a shop owner's window who happens to be Jewish. All of a sudden, the moment you threw that rock, something changed in you. It was easier to pick up the next rock. The first time you turned in your neighbor, you felt guilty. Didn't feel so bad the next time. By the end of the war, you had good, formerly just normal people who did unthinkably cruel things to another human being because that hate was given action. And in giving it action, the hate grew. Until you convince yourself that that person's not a person like me. What the Russians and the Germans did to one another was unthinkable. Because they convinced each other, those guys aren't human. By the end of the war, the Americans, the British, all the Allied forces stood back and let the Russians finish their march to Berlin because of all that the Russians had done for the war effort. What we don't talk about very often is on the way, what the Russians did to the German peasants and the German country folk on the way to Berlin was some of the worst and horrible, inhumane things of the whole war. But everybody let it happen because they said, well, look what they did to these people. You can always give yourself a justification to step out of love. If you're ever looking for a loophole, the enemy will be happy to supply you with one. But if you can say this, Jesus had a thousand loopholes when he looked at me and he took not one of them. He had a thousand loopholes out of the cross. A thousand moments he could have said no. But he chose the cross out of love for me. So should we love one another. And John says, this is how we know we're born again, is that there's love working in us. That love is the proof of it. I've said it several times today, but I'll say it again as we begin to wrap up. There is no greater proof of somebody's maturity in Christ than the fact that their love has grown. That's how you know you grew in Christ. That's how you know you've grown. That should be our goal, is to love like Jesus. Thank God that we, that we have a goal to move mountains, <laughs> to give to the poor, to give our lives to Jesus. But as Paul said, none of that counts if there's not love. The greatest thing is love. That's the greatest proof of Jesus in your life. You know, Jesus talks about this is what, we'll, what it'll be like if you keep my commandments, you keep the Father's commandments, this is what'll happen. He says, if you keep my commandment, then, then you're abiding me and I in you and all of this. And if you just left it there, you might say, well, what commandments are you talk- is he talking about? All the commandments. You might, you might come up with a list of commandments, but he goes on and tells you what commandment he's talking about. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another, that your joy may be full. 
You want to know what Jesus' commandment was? It was that you would love. And the product of that love is a fullness of joy in your life. So here's what my dream is for me. Here's what my dream is for our church. That someday somebody could write a letter and say, I'm thanking God for you. And it's only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Can we just pray that the love of God would grow ever greater in us, that our faith would be enlarged, and as our faith is enlarged, our love grows. Amen. 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 What's the proof of a man or a woman of faith? Love is the greatest proof of a man or a woman of faith. Now, there'll be other things. Praise God. The sick will be healed. The, the, the blind will see. The lame will walk. The, the demon-possessed will go free. I believe all of that. But why did Jesus heal the sick? Some will tell you that it was simply because he wanted to prove he was the Messiah. He wanted to prove he was the Son of God. He did those as signs. Yes, they were signs. But I, come on, guys. If he wanted to prove he had power, he could have done a lot of different things. He could have moved mountains. He could have killed people. He could have called down fire. All of those things would have proved that he had power. All of those things would prove he was supernatural, proved he was the son of God to many. But what he did with his power was heal, deliver, set free, proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Destroy the work of the evil one. That's what he did. So his power was proven and enacted by his love. The Bible says he was moved with compassion. He was not unfeeling. He didn't say, I couldn't care less if you live or die, but so that you'll know I'm the Messiah, be healed. No, he said, move with compassion. He healed them. One of the things, and I'll just close with this thought. One of the things that John said, and John was the oldest guy left. He was the last original disciple left. And he wrote something that I just, um, every now and then I think about it, it just, it moves me. He said, those that were his own, he loved. And he loved us to the end. Now you can translate that a couple ways. Loved us to the end, as in the end of his life. But of course, the end of his life wasn't the end. It's still not the end. Do we believe he'll love us to the end? Yeah. But you can also translate that, the end, you can translate it as to the fullest and highest degree. That he loved us to the fullest and maximum that he, anyone could love anybody. He didn't love us just enough. He didn't love us just with the love that we needed. He loved us to the fullest and final degree. He loved us to the end. That's the last major thing John left remembering about Jesus until he saw him again on the Isle of Patmos. But that's what he remembered about Jesus walking. He loved us. He loved us to the fullest degree. That's what was left. If someone were to ask him, what did you remember most about Jesus? He could have said, well, I remember all the miracles he did. I remember how he walked through the crowd when they tried to kill him and he survived. I remember how he fed the loaves and fishes to many, but 
But John, if you really were to ask him what stuck with him, it wasn't the mighty deeds. It was the love that he showed to us. That's what I remember. That's the one thing that stood above everything else. At the end of your life, may that be the one thing that stands out above everybody else. Everything else, sorry. They loved like Jesus loved. One of the greatest tools of evangelism is, of course, the gospel proclaimed, right? But another great tool of evangelism is that people would look at us and see that we love one another. That's how you'll know they're my disciples, that they love one another. Hallelujah. Even to think about it just gives me chills. May our faith be greatly enlarged and our love to one another grow even greater. Let's stand up and pray.